James. Raff. Silicon. Yep. Chips. Mm-hmm. Yum. No, that's it. That's it. Here's another one for you. What's uh, incredibly tiny mm-hmm. but gets the job done? Microchips. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very serious. Yeah. Get down to business. Microchipses. <laughs> Some of the worst intros we've ever, <laughs> ever literally ever recorded. <laughs> Microchips. Now before you fucking go, wow, this is gonna be boring as hell. Yep. Not you. <laughs> Sorry. This is a need to know episode. That, and maybe it'll surprise you. You need to know about microchips. Like you literally, have you, you have to. You can't exist and not know about them. We're putting our um, our teacher hats on, and we're saying, "I know you want to learn about Facebook and TikTok, yeah, computer games, yeah, five steps on how to go viral on social media, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and increase your clout." I tune into Downrank because they talk about Microsoft Teams and other <laughs> such exciting topics. We're saying to you. Eat your vegetables. Yes. The microchip industry, very, very important. And also, I'll let you on a little secret, actually kind of interesting. It's super interesting. It's super interesting. It's actually genuinely interesting. Yeah, you know, I often use this as an excuse as to why we're covering relatively dry topics. But people do actually ask me from time to time, explain what the situation is with microchips. Because all of a sudden, microchips are the reason why I can't buy a PS5 or used cars are really expensive. Yeah, or they hear about the Taiwan thing and chips and say, Yeah, they wonder, like, why, why is Taiwan involved? Mm. Why is Chinese Taipei involved <laughs> in why my microwave is delayed from appliances online? Mm. The important questions of life. Well, we're here to answer them, and we're here to answer them in a two-parter episode. Two-parter because it's, it's a big topic and we want to get through it. So the first episode... We're going to give you a bit of a crash course in how the microchip came to be, how it sort of, how the industry evolved and why it is the way it is right now. And what it is, how they're made. Yeah, how they're made. These episodes will be very acronym heavy. And we're going to start rattling off a list of acronyms that all sound really similar. And because we're going to be moving a mile a minute, we're not going to even stop for a second so you can catch your breath mm. and understand what we're talking about. Anyway, so the first one, we'll go through that. And the second episode, which will be for subscribers as is traditional with our release structure. Um, we'll kind of go into a little bit more about the, the present, chip, the present, the chip shortage, where it's all heading, the current weird geopolitics around chip production. But before we go into all that kind of stuff for our cherished paying subscribers, let's start at the beginning. Mm. Let's go back. The microchip, which now powers basically all facets of our modern life, whether you're posting a video on TikTok or you're pressing the defrost button in your microwave. Yeah, that's one thing that's worth noting right up the top. When people think of like microchips or microprocessors, they think microprocessors, they think like, oh, your processor, your your CPU, or yeah, or your M1 chip. That's what we're talking about. No, like a a car has more than 100 chips in it. Way more. Some new cars have like 1,500. So, you know, your electric windows... Your toaster nowadays, it's cheaper to have a little chip in it rather than a bunch of mechanical things like sensors yeah, yeah. and timers. Chips are in everything. Totally. Everything's been chipified. The The cable you use to charge your iPhone has a bunch of chips in it. Mm. 
Raf, tell us, what is a microchip? A microchip is layers of silicon with transistors, transistors being like little dots of metal, and they're connected by, or interconnectors, again, made of copper, that is the basis of programming. It tells things what to do. If you imagine a little silicon wafer with like heaps of little dots of metal, then layered, and depending on how you kind of put it together, it's able to, from a very basic level, it might tell something, power is on now, to more complex things like, yeah, an iPhone chip or whatever, an M1 processor, which is actually like a bunch of different kind of chips and microprocessors all kind of put together. Yeah. But like nowadays, like a basic chip will have kind of 250, 300,000 to more complex ones, like a M1 processor will have literally like a billion transistors totally. on them. We'll get into the, the more specific stuff about modern chip production now, but now rather than, you know, assembling little lines of semiconductor material. So the, the core of this is the thing that made this stuff work was the discovery of semiconductor materials or the properties of semiconductors. So you got like conductive materials like copper, which conduct electricity, and then you have um, material that does not conduct electricity at all, like rubber. Then in the middle, you have semiconductors, um, semiconductor material like silicon, which conducts electricity in particular circumstances and can be sort of controlled. Because of that innovation, uh, they invent the transistor back in 1947. It's the basis of modern computing because it lets you create really, really small computers that do calculations based on you know logic gate and what have you. So that was our feeble explanation of how a microchip works. And there's probably, you know, the five of our subscribers who work in the industry that are like, these guys are fucking morons. But for the rest of you, that's a completely serviceable explanation. Yes. Electricity goes in, ones and zeros come out. Yep. Yep. As with so many bits of technology and software and hardware and what have you, a lot of the early applications of microchip and integrated circuit technology was for the military. They were trying to find after World War II and into the 1950s, trying to work out ways that they can make guided missile technology and, and weapons technology work, computer targeting, things like that. And so it was, it was a little while before they actually got to into consumer applications. One of the sort of like funny little bits of history there is that the integrated circuit was actually independently invented at two different companies mm. in the US. It was kind of like the, um, the telephone. Alexander Graham Bell and um, the other guy. Tesla, Nikola Tesla. I oh, Nikola Tesla, yeah, that makes sense. It was basically invented at the same time in like the late 1950s at Texas Instruments and a company called Fairchild in their sort of sub-brand called Fairchild Semiconductor. So creation of the integrated circuit led to the sort of creation of microchip, that, as we said, a really crucial component in modern electronics. Um, and around that time is when you have sort of like that fertile zone where all these sort of companies are popping up. One of the biggest ones in the early 1960s is Intel. Mm -hmm. And this is the one that most listeners will probably have been exposed to at some point because uh, Intel later went on to power the personal computer revolution. If you had a PC in the 1990s, uh, it almost certainly had an Intel uh, computer processor inside it. But Intel is really interesting because one of its founders was a guy by the name of Gordon Moore, really, really important guy in the development of the microchip. And he came up with something that you have most likely heard of, which was Moore's Law. Mm. And Moore's Law was basically an observation that the number of transistors on a microchip doubles about every two years. 
So Gordon Moore came up with that formulation in 1965 based on his own observations about how the industry was was coming along. He was like, oh, it seems like basically every two years we figure out a way to double the number of transitions on a microchip, keeping in mind that as Raf said before, there are now microchips coming out that have literally billions of uh, transistors on a, on a single tiny chip. Mm. Back in the early days, there was in, that number was in the hundreds. So it's in that in the intervening decades, that's how we've doubled every two years until we've kind of arrived at this point. Like the piece of paper thing where like if you fold a piece of paper seven times, it reaches the moon. Yep. And you can try that at home, folks. And it'll, <laughs> and it'll definitely work. Well, we will... We're going to check in on Moore's Law at the end of this yeah. this two-parter to see how it's been progressing. The microchip, as I said, came from sort of military applications and started to sort of like spread its tentacles into sort of the rest of the economy in slow sort of like jumpstart formation. This sort of kicked off the miniaturization of consumer technology. It was pretty nascent at that point, but the idea that, oh, shit, we can actually create machinery that can potentially work in the home, can work in the office, that isn't gigantic yeah. bits of equipment. This is when we started to see early computers and the, the early computer era, giant room-sized laboratory equipment, essentially as computers once were, mm. transitioning into something that could at the very least be like a workstation that sits on like a desk or something. Now, and again, just to piss off those five people who understand every single aspect of this, I think a, a simplified way of thinking about this is like if your transistors are basically on-off switches, ons and offs, they started off being really big. The transistors, these kind of on-off things started off being really big. So, yeah, when I say big, I mean you can see them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, that's why you might only have 100 or 200. And when we say like uh, the number of transistors doubled, the chips themselves aren't doubling in size. Typically, the transistor is getting smaller and is used to material that doesn't kind of leak as much, and they're getting kind of smaller and smaller and smaller, which brings us to now where we're talking in the nanometers. And again, we'll kind of get to the that a bit later, talking about nanometers. The latest chips nowadays are kind of three nanometers, and we're talking about going back to a time when um, you could see them. They weren't in the nanos. Totally. You could see them with your own two eyes. When I say ones and zeros and on-off, for people who don't know, one and zero, like if you look at the on button on a computer, you know, there's like a zero with a little one like line through it. One is on and zero is off. When you think about binary and like one, one, zero, one, 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 and know that like an A is like zero, one, zero, 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 one, or whatever it is. I don't actually know what it is. Sounds right. Something like that. That is the basis of computers is like electricity either going from one transistor to another or not. That's a one and a zero. Yep. It's on or it's off. It's foundational stuff here, folks. Like this is what computers are. Yep. And so the the really big sort of like accelerating event in terms of like how this stuff worked was 1971 when Intel came out with the Intel 4004, which was the world's first commercial microprocessor. And this is basically putting all the functions of a computer's sort of like central processing unit, so CPU, onto one chip. So this was like quantum leap forward. You could now have an entire computer, at least the central sort of functions of it, operating on one tiny little chip. And this is the thing that sort of kicked off the personal computer revolution, the idea that someone could actually have a computer that sits in their home or their office or whatever, and they can sit in front of it and, and do office work on a computer rather than booking time at like a fucking university lab yeah. or something. 
to have something work. It's kind of funny, like all of the old school Silicon Valley, the old school computer places, they all have micro in their name. Yeah, totally. Sun Microsystems. Microsystems. Microsoft. AMD, Advanced Micro Devices. Yeah, micro was the thing to be. Yeah. You want to be micro. Micro. And again, there's a also one of the biggest chip manufacturers in the US that does memory chips, at least it's called Micron. Again, this was the slickest thing you could be. It was like in our current era where actually not not really our current, but like just past, where you would have like an a weird little word with an R at the end, like Tumblr. Yeah. Or getter. Yeah. Or the I the I craze in the early two thousand tens was like I obviously modeled off iPhones. Back then it was micro. Yeah. You had to indicate that you were extremely tiny. <laughs> you had to be <laughs> You did small shit. You had to be small as shit. And people were like, that is wild. But uh, another country sort of came up and was challenging US dominance even in that period. So obviously all these sort of innovations came out of America. But the first country to sort of start challenging their superiority in this realm was Japan. Japan got really good at building memory chips and doing it cheaper and doing it better than the US. Their innovations were much quicker and they were manufacturing it at a higher quality than the the American chip fabrication companies were doing. Yeah, we've talked about this before about like the Japanese industrializing the kind of manufacturing process in that with really sophisticated processes that left American companies for dead. The classic case study is motorbikes. Americans had the Harley Davidson, the coolest, fastest, loudest bike. And Japan started making Kawasaki's and Hondas. Yamahas. Yamahas. That at first, you know, Americans were like, oh, these things are crap. Like, you know, these Asian bikes, what have they got in a Harley? Until they started arriving on American shores and the things absolutely smoked these Harleys. They cost half as much. They were way more reliable, way more efficient because of these factory processes that the Japanese kind of pioneered where they just had incredibly strict processes. They also, with regards to the manufacturing, again, the kind of old case study is that in America, like when Spike was defective or whatever, they'd kind of just be like, eh, we have defective bikes. Like they happen. In Japan, they'd shut down the plant, work out exactly the part where something went wrong report on it, improve it until every single part of the manufacturing chain was just absolutely perfect. So they could just churn out this way higher, like mass produce, these super high quality vehicles. So you ended up with A, higher volume, B, cheaper price, and C, a better quality build that customers were more happy with. So anyway, and this is why also in like cyberpunk novels and like sci-fi, like Japan is always kind of seen as... It's kind of funny to think about. Japan was like the first country where... The Western world got really kind of scared that of like this is when people start talking about like the Asian century. Yeah, yeah. Like we are going towards a century in which Asia is going to be completely dominant, and Japan was the focus of that. And it kind of it even lingered into like it was definitely big in the seventies and eighties, and lingered a bit into the nineties. That like as you say, yes, when when you thought about like a cyberpunk dystopia, it was like sci-fi writers being scared that like the West was going to become like Japan. Yeah, you'd always Blade, have Blade like, Runner. yeah, Blade Runner. But you'd, you'd always have, you know, these Japanese areas of the American yeah. neighborhoods or whatever that were totally dominated by a Japanese corporation or whatever it was. Yeah. Because, I, like, they had charts, literally. It's hard to understate this, like, the fear as well in the American mind. Charts of, you know, American growth in this kind of linear fashion and Japanese growth where you'd have this exponential line with the year 2007 or whatever marked on it where that's where the Japanese 
economy goes straight past America and it just keeps accelerating unless we do something about it. Obviously, they had a massive stagnation in the 90s that they haven't really kind of come back from. But yes, we're we're still, we're talking chips. Yeah, yeah. Japan, but, Sony. But chips is what kind of drove this because they yeah. were, this was like the most futuristic technology, semiconductors, transistors, microchips. Japan was dominating specifically in like this memory chip sector because that, that was kind of like the hot thing at the time. And yeah, it, that kind of like spread out into culture as well. Japan was building great chips and then there were companies like NEC. NEC was a big early developer of memory chips in Japan, mm. one of the biggest developers in the world. But it also started to translate into like domination of the culture. And I think it was a really good early example of, oh, if you control tech, if you control like this technological production, you are going to have like a massive influence on like culture. And the, the company that really embodied that was Sony because mm. Sony took the early Japanese successes in producing memory chips and microchips and what have you and designed the Walkman, basically. And the early earlier than that was like their miniaturized transistor radios. So you could buy like a pocket radio mm. that you could walk around and listen to and listen to what on your little headphones back in the 1970s that was from Sony. And even back then, they were, Sony had this marketing strategy, which was called uh, Convergence, which was in, incredibly prescient. And it was their idea is like, thanks to the micro, like microchips, the world of like technology, art, music, film is all going to converge into one kind of blob. That is what led to Sony acquiring film studios and music labels, all that kind of stuff. They were so ahead of the game in that regard. And obviously that led to them also designing the PlayStation and yeah, Sony, a very, very, very interesting company, but slightly sidetracked. But that sort of forestalled the development of the personal computer industry. And this is where Japan started to act, to struggle really badly mm. because the, the focus went from memory chips and like basic transistor, sorry, basic um, microchips to microprocessors became like the big game. The idea of like miniaturizing computer processing functions into a tiny little chip and that was something that Americans were kind of back on top with. You know, companies like Intel became dominant in that again, the emerging computer space with companies like Apple, Microsoft, developing the software for them, IBM, developing home PCs, HP, these kind of companies. Japan wasn't able to rise to the challenge. And to this day, although Japan still produces a decent amount of uh, microchips, they were never ever able to like capture that moment and they've been behind ever since. Mm. Uh, and as you most likely well aware, Japan is no longer the the country people are afraid of taking over the world. No. They also had like a real estate crunch and things like that as well. So yeah. there were some other factors. And yeah. Aging Demographics. Like, aging population. Anyway. Yeah. You, Low birth look, rates, all kinds of stuff. Look forward to the Downround Japan episode yeah. where we, we absolutely tear into Japan. Yeah, yeah. They've been doing low interest rates forever and it hasn't worked. No. Rip. Rip Japan. But they did basically, I mean, not invent the headphone, but, you know, the Walkman made the headphone portable. That's worth noting. Headphones used to be something for in the house until the Walkman. Yeah. Japanese did that. Motorbikes, headphones, guitars. They took heaps of business from, like, Fender and Gibson back in the 80s because they were making better guitars. Hats off to the Japanese. Yeah. Hats off. Anyways, companies like Apple, IBM, Microsoft driving this this computer revolution. And then all of a sudden, America was sort of back on top. They were controlling the, the conversation because they were the ones manufacturing this stuff. 
And they were controlling it in a way that at the time made a lot of sense with these kind of vertically integrated companies, right? Who yep. are designing chips, manufacturing them, they're fabricating them, packaging them, and then putting them in technology from top to bottom. Like AMD and Intel, like from start to finish, they own the full process of these chips and manufacturing them. And it was a fantastic business model because it's very hard to make these chips. Yep. That was the, the way that this business was run is that a company like Intel, who were top dogs during the personal computer era, they would invest an absurd amount of money into R&D trying to figure out how can we keep Moore's law rolling along? How can we double the performance of microchips every two years? So to have those guys doing it, these guys would design chips, which would go to what are called um, foundries or fabs that would uh, build these chips, which then, then would be sold to customers. Yeah, but basically the situation was Intel announces, here's our latest chips. If we're talking about like microprocessors and, and yep. the most kind of advanced type, it's like, here's our latest microprocessor, go and do what you want with it. And then people build products around it. They also obviously have a bunch of legacy chips and blah, 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 that they that they produce that people build products around it. But the point being is that Intel designs them, Intel releases them. It's up to you how you then want to integrate it and use it. They obviously still work with a bunch of different OEMs, uh, laptop manufacturers, whatever, man- server manufacturers, whoever it is, um, IBM being the big one at the time. But it's an, almost an off-the-shelf product that you then have to integrate into whatever system that you want to integrate it into. Yep, they controlled that whole process uh, with vertical integration. That ended up not being the best way of running the show. The company that really blew that apart was a company named TSMC, which stands for Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And this was the first big Taiwanese microchip company. So it was actually developed by a guy named Morris Chang, who is a Taiwanese was born in Taiwan, went to a university in America and worked for a bunch of chip companies while he was over there. He worked at Texas Instruments, for example, which is one of the, a company that developed microchips but also put it into consumer products like calculators. And he worked with the Taiwanese government who were trying to figure out what they could become a manufacturing superpower for. Before that, Taiwan was best known for you know textiles manufacturing and a lot of pretty unsophisticated manufacturing work and they decided what are we going to absolutely own what's going to be our what's going to be our thing and thanks to what is essentially shown itself to be one of the greatest industrial policy victories ever Mm. i would say taiwan was like all right we're going to do microchips he founded tsmc morris chang the government helped to bring a whole bunch of taiwanese engineers back from countries like the united states where they'd been working and studying and, and learning how this stuff worked and were like deeply incentivized them to return to Taiwan to build this industry. And TSMC was the company that sort of unlocked the power of this industry by basically saying, all right, instead of having one company that designs chips, you know, has the, the R&D, has the guys and sits down and works out and then builds them in their fabricators and in their, in their foundries, we are going to split that apart. But it was almost by necessity, yep. right? They knew that they didn't have the institutional knowledge to design chips. Yeah. And so they went down the route of, we just build them. Laser focus on the part where we actually just make the stuff and we'll let the eggheads in the US figure out how the chips 
are designed. Yeah, we'll just like become very good at executing. On just that. the manufacturing. The, so they're the they're the fabs. They're the foundry. They just make it. And whether that was by I think it was kind of a coalescence of things. Like they recognized that there was a role, like strategically there was a role for just a manufacturer, but also, as I said, by necessity, they knew that they were never going to catch up with the US or what was happening in, in the UK. I believe there was also a bunch of yep. kind of institutional knowledge there. They knew they were never going to leapfrog these superpowers. So they're going to focus on the manufacturing. And my understanding was at the time, they were basically like, there is a small element of businesses and companies who do need a custom design, but can't invest in actually the manufacturing process. Because, yeah, at this time, you, there was no one that you could basically go out and say, hey, I've got this design for a chip. Can you make it for me? You basically had to just take whatever Intel or, or AMD or whoever gave you. But by, I think, it, I honestly think that, like, when you look at the history books, it actually was somewhat by chance. This turned out to be a way better business model that, was, that they kind was, of stumbled on. Yeah, it was hugely better because all of a sudden, well, it, it, it split the function such that now... Companies in the US, which had a huge amount of intellectual horsepower, could just, just focus on one thing and not have to worry about something that was becoming incredibly expensive to manage. So part of this Moore's Law formulation, every two years, the num- number of transistors on a chip are doubling. It's becoming more and more and more and more complicated, hmm. more and more expensive to set up these chip fabs and these foundries. And that's just absorbing a disproportionate amount of energy. So that- and when we say complex, this is worth noting right now, and because it speaks to, I guess, something we're going to touch on a bit later. When we're talking about, yeah, simple chip having three hundred thousand transistors on it, the process that it takes, there's usually around three hundred and fifty steps involved in making just this quote unquote simple chip, because you know you're just layering these transistors on transistors on transistors, etching out this silicon at, at like such a tiny, tiny level, like etching a piece of silicon so that it fits 350,000 transistors is obviously such a such a detailed process. And when you've got 350 of these steps, as you can imagine, if you were to kind of have a 99.9% success rate at every step, you end up with no chips. Yeah. Like if you have one in 300 errors, then you, yeah, you literally end up with no chips. So this has to be like 99.999% accurate in every single step of the it's process. Like, it's literally like... Um the most complicated thing that human beings can do. <laughs> I think it's like the best way to put it. Yeah. Like building a microchip is the, is like basically the most sophisticated piece of manufacturing that the human race is capable of Yeah, and relies on basically every single innovation in manufacturing and development that has come up to this point. Yeah. yeah and was getting more and more complicated at this time. So um, TSMC came in at like a an incredible moment to decide to let's split these two functions. Let's let the designers do what they do and we will handle the manufacturing. It also had like the nice little bonus that TSMC could be sort of like the neutral player in the middle of everything. Mm. So it could contract with anyone. Intel obviously wasn't going to let competitors use their fabrication facilities, but TSMC was like whoever. And to this day, it remains true. TSMC is the biggest chip manufacturing firm in the world by like a massive margin and they work with apple they work with all of apple's competitors they work with nvidia and amd who are both competing graphics card manufacturers doesn't matter they work with everyone Mm. and that's just the only choice that you have so taiwan was was building up its uh, semiconductor manufacturing capabilities its microchip uh, manufacturing capabilities so was south korea 
is the other sort of superpower in this regard. Uh, the big one in that regard being Samsung. Mm. So if you said to someone like, you just need to know two chip manufacturing companies, it's TSMC and Samsung. Those are the two ones that like you need to know about. Everyone else is kind of like way behind. Those are, those are the two kind of like big dogs. So another, another thing to be aware of at this time is that there's a, a bunch of different processor architectures that are being developed as well. So Intel's one that it's been using for all these things, all these chips that made it so dominant in the, the PC industry is called x86. That's what Windows PCs run on. That's what a lot of personal computers run on. There's the x86 uh, architecture, which they invented. But there's a few other ones sort of coming up at the same time. Macs, for example, were using something called PowerPC, which is also is what like the the PS3 also ran on, on PowerPC. And there was a British company called ARM, which were inventing their own one by the same name, ARM, which basically the best way to think about it is that it's kind of like three different languages for how chips work, how the instruction set worked and yeah. how the software is written for it is totally different. This is part of the reason why, you know, Macs weren't compatible with PCs back for majority of like the 90s yeah. and early 2000s is because they ran on completely different software sets. So there was a fight over the standards of how these chips were actually made and how the software and the instruction sets were written. But the big sort of like seismic shift that sort of defined everything in the years since was the transition from personal computing to smartphones. So this really accelerated chip production altogether because from 2007 when the iPhone came out, suddenly everyone had a very powerful computer in their pockets at all times, which massively amplified the number of chips that were being produced uh, and the types of chips that were being produced. This was like the moment where Intel, which was dominant for a huge part of the second half of the 20th century, started to sort of eat shit, basically. Yeah. In fact... Apple actually approached Intel when they were developing the iPhone and said, can you help us build the chip for this? And Intel basically said, no, this is going to butcher our PC business. It's going to distract us. It's going to take away from what we're doing. You can like figure it out yourselves. We're focusing on high performance, personal computing chips or whatever. Like, Yeah. And to this day, the majority of PCs and like server architecture runs on x86, which is Intel's thing. But... It turned out, obviously, that iPhones and smartphones were a relatively big deal. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair, a fair point to make. And instead, Apple went with ARM, which is this architecture which was designed by this British company, ARM. And the reason they went for them in the end is that not only was it powerful enough to handle what they were doing, it was incredibly low power consumption, whereas Intel's architecture, very powerful, but absolutely chewed through energy. If anyone remembers building computers back in those days, your power supply had to be bigger and bigger and bigger every year. You just needed to be frigging pumping electricity into these damn things. Totally. And bigger and bigger fans. Yeah. So it turned out that like this sort of low power consumption while keeping the power of the chip relatively strong was the thing that like absolutely defined the 21st century, at least to date. And uh, ARM, um, like that's a fascinating company as well because they don't actually make chips themselves either. In much the same way that TSMC only manufactures them, ARM only designs them and has the IP for like these kind of designs. They don't make chips themselves. Yeah, exactly right. So that became the architecture for the iPhone. It also became the architecture for 
basically all smartphones altogether, whether you're on a Android or whatever, you are most likely using something that's on the ARM architecture. And basically, as a result, Intel completely missed the boat. To this day, they don't do almost any kind of like mobile hardware, where as you can see, as it, which as you can imagine, is a huge loss because that's what everyone uses now. You know, it's come out the other side as well, where uh, until a few years ago, Macs were still using Intel-based processors, yep. but based originally on the architecture from the iPhones and Apple Watches and all these low-powered devices, the most recent Macs famously moved to the M1, which is um, like ARM-based architecture again, yep. and it's it's way lower power and way more powerful. So yep. even the personal computer is you know, no longer using these Intel-based chips. Yep, totally. That was also a massive loss for, for Intel too when Apple stopped using their chips altogether and started building all their computers off their own ones. Apple is a great company as an example of this trend towards companies that design chips but don't make them. Basically, all of Apple's chips are made by either TSMC or Samsung, but Apple designs them all. They have like some of the best chip designers in the world work at Apple and they focus on making chips for the iPhone and they send them to TSMC to make them. Based on ARM's architecture. Another fascinating thing about ARM is that you know, they have the IP for these various components. Like no one's going to bother rebuilding, yeah, again, like some kind of power management transistor design or whatever. You just use the ARM one. Yep. And like there are all these facets of, of the chips that they own the IP for and that's how they make money and that's how they're uh, a massive company. Yep. Five and a half thousand employees mm. just designing chips. God, imagine. Not, pre- not making anything, just designing. I know it smells crazy in there. <laughs> British as well, right? Oh, God damn. Five and a half thousand Brits just designing chips. Just sitting sitting in this, sitting in a sauna. They probably don't wear shirts. That's probably not true. I'm making that up. So gone from the the birth of these chips that kind of started in universities and militaries to um, the birth of the microprocessor, far more complex kind of chips or series of kind of chips that needed to be made by a fully integrated company like an Intel that made it from top to bottom. AMD advanced micro devices. Famously, the uh, the CEO said, real men own fabs or real men have fabs. I actually can't remember the quote. Something along those lines, like you need to be doing the lot. It uh, remains true. If you don't have a fab, <laughs> you're a woman. <laughs> yeah, obviously ridiculous and outdated thing to say. Um, <laughs> but to the unbundling period where... In fact, real businesses might just be a fab and they might just do design, i.e. the new era where Apple work with ARM to design these chips and use a bunch of like the ARM's IP to um, pull them together and, and ARM's architecture and, and then send it to TMC who manufacture them on their behalf, which then actually goes to like another company which will um, kind of test them all, package them all. And then kind of crucially get sent to... Foxconn in China to assemble it. Yeah. So no longer this fully vertically integrated system. Real men don't have a yeah, fab. Exactly. If you own a fab, that's gay. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we're at with chips. That's kind of how, how we got here. That's how we got to where we are right now. And in part two of this series, we're going to talk about U.S. versus China. We're going to talk about supply chain shortages. We're talking about COVID. We're talking strategy. Yeah, why the world that was generated by the process we just talked about started to 
burst it at the seams a little bit, mm. but also where it's kind of going next. What happened to Moore's Law? Is that going to persist into the future? What kind of developments are sort of coming down the pipeline that will affect microchips, which have become basically the world's one of the world's most important commodities, yeah. with, along with like oil. So that's what we're going to tackle yeah. in episode two. So what happens if China expropriates TSMC? What if? God, imagine. Mm. Anyway, that's what we'll talk about in the next episode. So if you want to listen to it, subscribe in our Substack downround.net. We'll see you there. Later. Now. I mean, not later. Now. Now. Later really now.